thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. month we're exploring the student brain. We find out exactly what is going on up there during the teenage years. Plus, we ask, are there drugs that can make us smarter? And if so, should we all be taking them? And we'll be taking on the neuroscience news of this month. This is the Naked Neuroscience podcast with me, Dr Hannah Critchlow, and brought to you in association with the Wellcome Trust and in partnership with the British Neuroscience Association. off the programme, we explore the adolescent brain. Now, Harry Enfield's infamous sketch on Kevin's 13th birthday provides a comic take on what it is to become a teenager. The clock strikes midnight and Kevin loses the power of rational thought and speech and he becomes the parody of a moody, stroppy teenager, embarrassed by everything that his parents do and finding everything just so unfair. Now, this entertaining, extreme take on adolescence is being scrutinised by the scientists. We speak with Professor Sarah-Jane Blakemore, who studies the teenage brain at University College London. It's only really recently that we've known that the adolescent brain changes so much. Up until about 15 years ago, scientists just didn't really have a clue about what was going on in the adolescent brain. And so these typical or stereotypical adolescent behaviours, not all teenagers behave like Kevin, but some do. And these stereotypical uh, teenage behaviours were mostly put down to kind of hormonal changes or social changes. But... Research in the last 10 or 15 years, uh, mostly using magnetic resonance imaging or MRI scanning, has enabled scientists to look inside the living, developing human brain at all ages and to track changes in both the structure of the brain, so its organization, and also how it functions across the lifespan. So there is now actually a vast amount of research on the adolescent brain. Really, this research has just completely taken off in the last decade. But if I just focus in on a couple of key findings. So one of the brain regions that um, undergoes the most protracted development in humans, and particularly during the adolescent period, is called prefrontal cortex. So that's part of the brain right at the front of your head. And prefrontal cortex is disproportionately bigger in humans than in any other species. And actually, it's involved in a whole load of higher cognitive functions that are much more sophisticated in humans than in any other species. So things like decision-making, planning, planning what you're doing this evening or next week or even next year. Uh, Prefrontal cortex is also involved in um, inhibiting inappropriate behavior, so stopping yourself, taking risks, for example. It's also involved in understanding other people, so social cognition, and also self-awareness. Now, we know from many uh, different magnetic resonance imaging MRI studies 
on thousands and thousands of children and adolescents that the prefrontal cortex undergoes really quite profound changes during adolescence. So we know, for example, that in terms of structure, grey matter volume, so grey matter contains brain cell bodies and connections between brain cells called synapses. And we know that in the human brain, in the human prefrontal cortex, grey matter increases during childhood. Peak grey matter volume occurs in early adolescence. A couple of years later in boys compared with girls, so around age 11 in girls and 13 in boys, probably because girls go through puberty a couple of years earlier than boys, and then decreases during adolescence. So in other words, there's quite a large loss of grey matter in the prefrontal cortex during human adolescence. And that might sound bad, but actually it's a really important process. We think it partly reflects the loss of excess um, connections. This is a process known as synaptic pruning. And synaptic pruning is a really important process. So it's partly dependent on the environment in that connections or synapses that are being used are strengthened and synapses that are not being used in that particular environment are eliminated, they're pruned away. So the necessary pruning or removal of surplus connections in the prefrontal cortex during adolescence might explain some of the behavioural changes associated with the teenage years. There's also a second line of inquiry measuring how the activity of the brain changes whilst teenagers are doing different tasks and having their brains scanned using functional magnetic resonance imaging. There's a huge amount of research coming out now in this area. Sarah explains some of her recent results. In my lab, we're particularly interested in the social brain, that is the network of brain regions that are used to understand other people. So, for example, to understand other people's minds, their emotions, their mental states, their intentions, that kind of thing. And what we tend to find is that during adolescence, there's a change in in which the social brain functions. So it's not that adolescents and adults are using completely different regions of their brain to understand other people. They're not. In fact, they're using more or less the same network of regions. But there's a change in the level of relative activity in the different regions of the network. And one of the findings that we've replicated several times and other people, other labs around the world have also found is that there's a decrease in the level of activity in a part of the social brain called the medial prefrontal cortex. So in other words, adolescents use the medial prefrontal cortex more than adults do to do exactly the same kind of social cognition task if it involves thinking about other people's uh, minds or emotions or intentions. And we think this might be because um, adolescents and adults use a different sort of mental approach, a different cognitive strategy to make social decisions. And that's something, that's a question that we're now particularly interested in looking at. And Sarah's lab has been doing some neat experiments and found that some social brain areas undergo maturation in association with how many years the people have been alive, whereas other areas mature more in association with how far along in puberty they are. This is the first study of its kind, and now we're trying to figure out why, you know, what causes the differences in these two regions. That was Professor Sarah Jane Blakemore from University College London speaking about a new area of neuroscience on how the brain changes during the teenage years. These findings could help to inform educational policy. Coming up, we'll be speaking with students from Jack Hunt School in Peterborough about a new drug that's hitting the classrooms.
But first, it's time to take a look at the top stories from this month. I'm sitting with David Weston, PhD student at Cambridge University, who's been scouring the neuroscience journals for his top three papers of the month. His first paper was published in Nature. A group of scientists in Iceland, collaborating with people from all over the world, discovered that a small mutation in one of your genes can dramatically reduce your likelihood of getting Alzheimer's. So it's a, a mutation in a gene that actually reduces the risk of Alzheimer's, so it's actually a beneficial mutation. The mutation is in the beta amyloid precursor protein, which is called APP, and it's been shown in previous studies to be involved with Alzheimer's disease. And if you compare the brains of a healthy person and someone with Alzheimer's disease, one of the most striking features that you can see is that the Alzheimer's patients have these large deposits of beta amyloid protein called plaques. And these plaques cause a whole host of effects that can include the dramatic memory loss that you see with Alzheimer's patients. And this new mutation appears to prevent these deposits from forming, which gives the person with the mutation a much lower risk of developing the Alzheimer's disease and the memory loss associated with it. And is this a combination of, for example, human observational studies and scientists looking at cells growing in a petri dish? The initial study was done with humans and looking at their genetic sequencing, but they also did a range of laboratory techniques that looked in vitro to see the effect of the mutation. And they found that with this mutation, the toxic production of beta amyloid was actually reduced. So this paper really demonstrates that a mutation in a particular gene can help us to understand more about Alzheimer's and may potentially lead to a new treatment for Alzheimer's as well. Can you now move on to your second exciting paper? So this next paper is a study that is trying to use technology to help people who've lost the use of their limbs, either as a result of an accident or a disease. And this was a recent publication in the Journal of Neural Engineering. So the researchers uh, from Imperial College London have developed a pair of glasses that actually allow a person to control a computer by using just their eyes. Aren't there technologies that are similar to this already out there? Yeah, so there have been quite a few studies that have looked at these kind of interfaces, but the advantage of this system is that it actually costs a significantly less amount of money compared to these previous studies, and also the accuracy has been massively improved. And how have they managed to do that then, improve the accuracy and also decrease the cost of this technology? So what they've done is they've actually used cheap components from video game consoles to track the movements of the eyes using small cameras. So by tracking these eye motions, the wearer of the glasses can control a computer to do many things like play games, browse the internet or even send emails. And so this remarkable technology can extrapolate not only where the person is actually looking, but because it works on both eyes, it can also tell at what distance they're looking at. And this opens up a whole world of possibilities for what this technology can be used for, and it allows people to interact with a three-dimensional environment rather than just a 2D one. Fantastic. So that's a neat example of how technology arising from play can actually go on to help patients. Yeah, definitely. And indeed, in the paper, they actually had a link to a video which showed them playing a, a 3D game on a computer, which is quite a neat way to show how their device works very well. OK, leading on to the last paper. So in this last paper, scientists have shed some light on how stress can lead to post-traumatic stress disorder, so PTSD. And we all know that fear and anxiety are essential parts of our lives because they teach us to not take unnecessary risk and to avoid dangerous situations. But sometimes this anxiety can be so intense that it actually prevents people from getting on with their daily lives. And in this new paper, the scientists presented data that showed these molecules called dynorphins play a role in suppressing anxiety in the brain. 
So how did they look into this dimorphins and the role of them in, in terms of fear and anxiety then? So what they did was they created a genetically modified strain of mice which actually lack the gene to produce these dimorphins and they tested them in a variety of laboratory situations to test how fearful and anxious they were. And they found that these mice that didn't have the dimorphins gene actually showed significantly increased fear response and anxiety response after being tested compared to normal mice. And is there any correlation between these dimorphins and human patients that may show enhanced anxiety or post-traumatic stress disorders? So, yeah, so the, the, the authors of the study actually had a look at human subjects and found that there are natural variations in the level of dynorphins in people's brains. And they found that with people with lower levels of dynorphins remained more anxious after a painful stimulus was delivered to them compared to those that had higher level of dynorphins after a fearful stimulus. So this really indicates that the dynorphins are a natural anxiety-relieving mechanism that the brain uses. So it seems these results could help piece together some sort of treatment for people suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder using natural anxiety systems already existing but probably not properly functioning in their brains. Thanks to David Weston, PhD student at Cambridge University. Still to come, we'll be answering your neuroscience questions, including are there drugs that could actually make you smarter? But first, a little more neuroscience news. Force of habit under stress. Scientists at Ruhr University and University Hospital Bergmannshill have discovered why stress makes people more likely to lapse back into old habits. The team used drugs to bring about stress in volunteers. They then examined their brain activity using functional MRI scanning whilst asking the stressed volunteers to perform tasks and choose a reward, say either oranges or chocolate cake. Published in the Journal of Neuroscience, the results show that the interaction of the stress hormones hydrocortisone and neuroadrenaline shut down the activity of brain regions for goal-directed behaviour and make people choose their favourite item, say chocolate cake, even if they've already had their full of it. Next up, wiring bats for neuroscience research. Dr Yossi Yovel and colleagues at Tel Aviv University are, for the first time, fitting bats with GPS. Since humans rely on vision, we can't accurately measure when something is perceived. But because bats rely on highly tuned and precise echolocation, emitting sonar calls that can be recorded and analysed, we have a window into perception and time coding. Results are coming in which could inspire future developments in robotic sensors and sonar technology, and they're published in Science and PLOS Biology. And finally, the lies have it. No evidence for lie-eye movement link. Since the 1960s, practitioners have been taught that when right-handed people are visualising made-up events in their mind's eye, they tend to look upwards and right. Recalling a real memory is claimed to be signalled by looking to the upper left. But this month, University of Hertfordshire researcher Richard Wiseman and colleagues conducted a series of blind experiments which provide considerable grounds to be sceptical of this old notion. And that study was published in PLOS One. If you want to find out more about any of those stories, the references are all on our website. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash neuroscience. A new drug appears to be hitting the UK classrooms. Students are increasingly buying over the internet, off prescription, drugs to help with their exam revision. 
They're called smarter drugs or cognitive enhancers. And 16% of American students and one in 10 students here at Cambridge University have admitted to taking these drugs. A number of questions have come in from our listeners. And I visited Professor Barbara Sahakian at Cambridge University. The first question was asked by Mitchell Bradley-Williams and Smita Chandran, asking, do such drugs really exist? Are they not just science fiction? And if they do exist, how do they work? And how clever can they actually make you? These drugs do exist. They're called cognitive enhancing or smart drugs. And uh, we have a number of different kinds of these drugs. So, for instance, I helped to do the first proof-of-concept studies for the drugs which are cholinesterase inhibitors. Those are drugs which boost acetylcholine in the brain and improve cognition in patients with Alzheimer's disease, and they're currently now used as treatments and approved by NICE. And they help boost, uh, really, attention and concentration And they frequently keep patients functioning at their best level. Then we have other drugs that might boost the chemicals in the brain called dopamine and noradrenaline, those neurotransmitters. And those are drugs such as methylphenidate or Ritalin as we know it. And those are used frequently in the treatment of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And they are very beneficial. We've done studies here at Cambridge showing that even if you're a healthy volunteer, you can find enhancement of different forms of cognition using these drugs like methylphenidate or Ritalin. And uh, there's now a newer drug called modafinil, which was licensed in about 1997 as provigil for narcolepsy, which is excessive daytime sleepiness. And that is being increasingly used by healthy people as a lifestyle drug. And how are they exactly improving cognition in these healthy volunteers? With our studies in healthy humans with modafinil, we have actually seen improvements in forms of executive function, but also on pattern recognition memory tests. So on a memory test, we've seen improvements. And the interesting thing is that, um, you know, it doesn't take much for a small improvement in one of the forms of uh, cognition to have a knock-on effect across a wide range of, of functions. So, for instance... In 2008, there was the Academy of Medical Sciences report, and uh, that stated that even a small 10% improvement on a memory score might lead to a higher A-level grade or degree class. So there's quite a lot to uh, play for here. And so there's a lot of neuroethical issues, too, about coercions and student use of these drugs when they're not actually got a... Uh, a neuropsychiatric disorder such as attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And Theo Gibson and Ryan Chown have been in touch and they're both asking what effect does these cognitive enhancer drugs actually have on the teenage brain? Yes, well, that's an extremely important point because I'm very concerned about the use of these drugs in healthy children. So, for instance, um, if you have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, it's very important if you've got severe ADHD that you get a treatment that's effective like methylphenidate or Ritalin because if you don't, it will impact on your ability to perform well at school and to have a good normal education. So you do need a treatment in order to do well at school and to obviously also make friends behaviorally and so forth. So it's it's really important that if you've got severe ADHD, you get a treatment. But then we have to ask, well, what are these effects when healthy people are taking these drugs on the developing brain? Really elegant work at the National Institute of Mental Health, uh, led by Jay Geed and others, shows that our brains are still in development well into late adolescence, early young adulthood. So even up to 
at the age of 25 years. So we have to ask the question, what are the effects of these drugs on a healthy, developing brain? I mean, will we be tampering with something that's already set to function really well and normally, and will we have a disadvantage later on? So I think we really have to be concerned about young people who are healthy taking taking these drugs. And in particular, the frontal lobes are in development uh, late on, and so they're very important for our cognitive control and executive function, various forms of working memory, and also for planning and executive functions such as problem-solving. So we don't want to tamper with something that's already functioning quite well. And that was Professor Barbara Sahakian from Cambridge University. Now, the naked scientists don't just sit in the buff in the studio interviewing scientists. Oh, no. We also get dressed and visit schools across the UK to discuss science with students. And as part of a Wellcome Trust Society Award, we visited schools to discuss these smarter drugs or cognitive enhancers. And here's some of the students that we've been discussing the drugs with. John Beasley. Natasha Brown. James Compton. Jordan Davis. So these are 17-year-old students from Neen Park Academy in Peterborough letting us know their thoughts. The first question that I asked them was, would you take these drugs? Well, we don't really know the side effects. So if we knew all the side effects and they were mainly good, then, yeah, I'd probably go with it. But if they were side effects like uh, decreased age expectancy, then I would just go no. And you're in the definitely no, I wouldn't be taking these cognitive enhancers camp. Why is that? Um, well, I think if you're going to be taking this sort of thing, it's not going to be your exam grade, it's going to be you plus this drugs exam grade. It's not you as a person, it's not, it's not who you are. It's just this performance has been put on you by the drug that you've taken. And if you went to a higher level and you're expected to perform at a level that you couldn't actually perform at because you've taken the drug... So it may affect your later life, for example, you might feel that you've got to take the drug if you go on to university for work performance. So... You're in the, yes, I would be taking the drug camp. And in some ways, you've just been accused of almost cheating. Everyone takes coffee during the day to help them stay awake throughout the day, just uh, perform better. And this drug would just be helping you to stay awake through the night, soaking more information up and benefit you in your exams. So there's no difference between these cognitive enhancers and traditionally used stimulants like caffeine or exercise or Red Bull, for example. And it's not actually cheating, it's using something that's actually there. I'm, I'm getting some people that are kind of going, oh, oh, oh. so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn back to your counter-argument to that. Well, if you think that it's the same as caffeine or any other stimulants that are there now, I don't think that that's a reasonable argument you're looking at because if you look at caffeine, for example... It's widely used across communities, and I don't think it's the intent that you're, you're wanting to do better in your exams. So you take caffeine, you drink it because it's there for enjoyment purposes, and if you were going to have this drug available, I think people would take it with intent to help them with their exam results. So it's more of a, it's more of a thing that you're wanting to do for an output that you're wanting to get from yourself. So moving on to the next point, so would you allow, for example, your children to take these drugs and what do you think about people your age or even younger taking these tablets it depends on the long-term effects because at a young age the brain is still developing so it could interfere with this development and it could either interfere with it negatively or it could also interfere with it slightly positive as well so at the moment we, we don't have much information on these drugs so we don't know what might happen in terms of the plastic nature of the brain and how these drugs might affect them in the long term 
Well, yeah, 15 years isn't really long enough to explore the long-term side effects. You need a good 40, 50 years for that, where this drug could improve your baseline cognitive ability or decrease it. We don't know. So if they were to increase it, I would actually let my children take it. They would actually become a better person. And what do you think would happen to society if the government, for example, put this as a supplement into our drinking water like they do with fluoride? Um, so if everybody in the UK or everyone in the world was taking these cognitive enhancers, do you think that might have widespread social implications? What might happen to our society? Well, I think if everybody took these drugs, it wouldn't change the staggered intellect or performance that we've got at the moment. It would just sort of shift people upwards as a whole collective group which I think could have a possibly positive effect however as long as we had extensive research into side effects and things that would go on if you did take the drug if you've taken the drug and it's boosted everybody up then obviously that's going to be positive because it's going to have an effect upon the community um, the the economy and the business sector and, the, and everything that we're doing I mean research even would go to a higher level because we've given this performance enhancing type thing that we've got. Okay, so, I mean, to concentrate on the fact that these cognitive enhancers actually, they've shown to improve attention and ability to retain information. But they may, I mean, we don't know, they may have a negative impact on creativity and innovative thinking. So do you think that might affect society? Uh, Yes, it could affect society. Basically, you could end up with no new ideas, just the same thing being repeated again and again, which could lead to almost like a stagnation effect a stagnated society if it did reduce creativity we'd basically just have a race of robots everyone would just be conformed to one way of thinking but if if it didn't decrease creativity then our race would just flourish it would become a really intelligent race loads of ideas that are new innovative we could potentially uh, hire ourselves up but we don't know how people would react to it it could conflict with people's uh, genetic makeup we, we don't know actually there just isn't enough research or information about it thank you so i'm now going to ask you for a, maybe one or two words that you think describes these cognitive enhancers from what you've heard today and what you've been discussing as a group today i would definitely say mysterious and artificial unknown intriguing possibly beneficial And that was Year 12 students from Neen Park Academy in Peterborough discussing smarter drugs. I then asked somebody who studies the ethics and implications of medical interventions for his additional thoughts. I'm Dr Ian Brassington and I'm a bioethicist based in the School of Law at the University of Manchester. One of the things that seemed to to concern them the most, and I suppose given that they're GCSE and A-level students, it's not entirely surprising, is the question of whether they're useful for the sake of academic achievement and whether they undermine academic achievement. And that's the kind of debate that you get, not just in relation to cognitive enhancers, but you also get it in relation to the use of enhancers in sporting performance. Just use the athletics analogy for a moment. If I was to take all the performance-enhancing drugs in the world that still wouldn't make me a champion sprinter if I never got off out of my chair. And the same kind of thing could be said in respect of cognitive enhancers. If I take all the cognitive enhancing drugs in the world, then that won't make the blindest bit of difference unless I spend some time sitting in front of a book. All an enhancer will do is sharpen your performance. So these cognitive enhancers, these smarter drugs, mm-hmm. you don't take them and they suddenly just make you smart. You still have to put the effort in. You still have to do the work. makes that work, possibly that learning phase, more efficient yeah. and also helps you to pay attention. Yeah. 
There are also worries about whether cognitive enhancers are necessarily what we want. So if you're talking about specific tasks, learning a list of new vocabulary, or even being a surgeon who wants to concentrate on the patient in front of him, there's that kind of thing where we might want to say that a drug that can help us concentrate and really focus down and not get distracted by shiny things is exactly what we want. But there are other times where that might be a very, very bad idea. Suppose you're a scientist who's not just going through the, the kind of everyday lab work, but you're, you're trying to come up with a new solution to a particular problem. Suppose you're trying to find a new way to attack a particular form of cancer or something. And it's, it's a tricky problem, and people have been working on this for years, and, and no one's quite got it yet. In that sort of situation, it's not always obvious that a drug to make you concentrate more is what you want. There is some evidence. Um, there was a paper published in 2003. Um, it suggested that there's a correlation between creativity and what we might loosely call ease of distraction. So the thought is here that the kind of person who doesn't filter out information, but, it, but who, who, who doesn't concentrate on what is apparently the most salient thing, but who, whose mind occasionally wanders, that kind of person can be correlated with the kind of person who is creative and gets recognized for thought. You know, they publish novels and that kind of stuff. Sometimes it's good that your mind be elsewhere. There's another quick point that we could make. It's obviously true that there are certain groups of the population that have problems with their memory, and there's, there's a very, very good reason to come up with drugs that would help them with the memory. So if we're talking about kind of the elderly here, people who might be isolated socially because their memory is failing them, that kind of thing. On the other hand, whether they're particularly useful in a day-to-day -day level is, again, not entirely obvious because what we're very, very good at already is outsourcing memory, whether that be in terms of something as simple as keeping a pen and paper to hand or an electronic PDA. So we could just look at those as cognitive enhancers in, in one sense, in which case, why do we need to worry about what's going on inside our head? Maybe what we need to say is we need to make sure that people have access to, to libraries, to other people, to that kind of stuff, so that they can engage in intellectual processes on a social level. And then if that's true, we don't have to worry about manipulating or tweaking people's brains quite so much. So you're really saying that we could cognitively enhance people's brains by stimulating people, by making sure that they're surrounded by a, a rich environment so that they can learn new things and be stimulated all of yeah, the time. Yeah, yeah. Why worry about people being able to memorise lists of, I don't know, mathematical formulae or, or how to perform particular mathematical functions or, or whatever when we could just give them a, an electronic calculator? That just seems like a much more efficient way of going about things. There's a, there's a kind of pride, I guess, that people might have about being able to do all manner of things in their head. If you just concentrate on improving people's memory, if the thing that they've remembered in the first place is mistaken, then you need some kind of external corroboration anyway, because otherwise they just end up going around in circles. And that being the case, why not just cut to the external stuff anyway? Why, why worry about people's brains? That was Dr Ian Brassington, lecturer in bioethics and medical law at Manchester University. And finally... We present our fascinating fact for the month. My name's Matthew Rushworth. I, I work in Oxford University and I'm a neuroscientist there. And I suppose that one of the things that I think most intrigues me about the brain is a phenomenon that we see uh, that's, that's very prevalent in many different experiments. And that's the fact that the brain seems to change as a function of experience. And this, I think, runs counter to the intuition that many non-neuroscientists have about what the brain does. We tend to think about the brain as the thing that causes behaviour, that produces the way in which we, we act. 
And if there's something different about our brain, then that constrains the way in which we might behave in the future. But for many neuroscientists, it's actually the opposite that's the case. As we gather different experiences, as we engage in different types of of behavior, then we see that there are subtle changes that occur in the brain. So, for example, if you were to uh, practice uh, juggling for a while, we would see parts of the brain that are concerned with uh, visual-spatial coordination changing and appearing to increase in size. Or if you engage in some other uh, chore, then parts of the brain that are concerned with the uh, cognitive processes needed to perform that chore would change in size. Even, it seems, if you spend more time engaged in social interaction, then parts of the brain that are important for mediating that social interaction uh, will will begin to change uh, and increase in, in size and change the way in which they interact with other brain region. So it isn't just the case that the brain drives the way in which we behave, but it's also really much more of a two-way street. It's also the case that behavior alters the way in which our, our, our brains are structured and alters the way in which they function. That was Dr Matthew Rushworth from Oxford University presenting his fascination with the fact that the brain is a bit like a muscle and can be exercised and affected by how we use it. So, by what we surround ourselves by and what we do. That's all for now. I'll be back again next month to unzip the genes in your brain. We'll be finding out about new genetic techniques for psychiatry and we'll be asking how much our IQ is determined by our genes. This Naked Neuroscience podcast has been brought to you in association with the Wellcome Trust and in partnership with the British Neuroscience Association. See you next month to open our minds. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.